Hello everyone, this is Shweb Khan here at Anti-Small Talk and today is our fourth episode in our Conversations About Inequality podcast series. Throughout the course of this series we've been looking at inequality using very much a intersectional design. We've been looking at the dynamics of social class, age, gender, ethnicity, religion, sexuality, disability, all as interlinking and creating a cage of inequality which our guests have been looking to take apart using their lived experience and shining light on their own experiences. Today, we have got the wonderful Ahmed Hayat, who will be talking to us about life as a Pakistani British or Pakistani Muslim educator. Ahmed and I will be talking about elements of Islamophobia, the use of discrimination within the classroom, the downpegging of Pakistani British culture and South Asian culture, and also, hopefully, will be giving, providing the opportunity for some forward steps and some tips that our educators can use to really help support our Pakistani British boys in particular. Hello, Ahmed, and welcome to Anti Small Talk. Hi, Shay. Hey, how are you doing? Yes, I'm fine, thank you. So myself and Ahmed, we've uh, been in conversation back and forth on social media, and we had a bit of a Zoom conversation the other day. I think it's really important to gather our thoughts and ideas together, because we both come from a very similar background, Pakistani-British or Pakistani-Muslim educators. Ahmed, for those people who don't know who you are, like to just tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so um, Ahmed, I'm 30 years old. I'm a math teacher um, from Oldham, teaching Oldham, and in my whole life. Um, I've got a son who's two years old. Oh, wow. Well, I'm I married didn't, as well. I'm married I didn't even, well. even know you had a son, so yeah. I didn't even know you had a son, so yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, so yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've been teaching at... I've only been at the same school ever since my PGC. Mm. Um, I had a placement at a different school. And luckily I got the job um, where I trained. And I've been there ever since. The Church of England school. Fabulous, fabulous. Um, yeah, so very good school. Myself and Ahmed, we share many bonds. Uh, coming from a similar background, it's almost like I've got a brother sat in the same room as me, which is really st- surreal. Similar sort of lingo, same sort of area in Pakistan. We, we, the villages, areas that we know, the sort of localities that we know. And I love for Malcolm X, which we're almost certain we'll get onto today as well at some stage. So, so Ahmed, so the, for the gist of our podcast, we've got loads of questions that have come in. Now, I think it's important that for myself and yourself to provide an authentic veneer to these questions. Um, so one of our questions, really important, the one that came across earlier was, what do you think have been the biggest um, biggest sort of... It's phrased, it's phrased in a quite a difficult way, this question, actually. I'll, I'll bring it back, back. What do you think are the biggest challenges facing Pakistani British educators or teachers? Well, I, I think it stems from... You gotta look at it contextually and historically as well, like what we went through as students and what um, currently students are going on now, like where can I start? Obviously being a Pakistani Muslim educator, you can even separate a Pakistani educator, you can be a Pakistani Christian educator, you can be a you can be an, be an Arab Muslim educator, you can be a white British Muslim educator. Mm. But um, obviously it's like a two pronged sword, isn't it? You go on the Pakistani route, you go on the Muslim route. Mm. Uh, honestly, where can I start? Like whatever stories I give in this podcast is is verified by by myself mm. through people who I trusted. The, the only stories that I'm gonna share are have been have gone through my ears or mm. I've seen with my own eyes or heard through my own ears. Mm. So they're all verified um stories and all fully authentic. Like where do you start like Absolutely uh, I, I love how you, Yeah, I love how you divide it into three there because you can be you're Pakistani, you're Muslim and you're male as well educator so you can even divide it into four so we're looking at four different realms we can discuss and i always find it when questions come to us we're asked about our position as pakistani males or or pakistani british males or pakistani muslim males it's never just as a male it's never just as a pakistani is it so we have to address levels of inequality or levels of like variation and support and ideas and worldviews within one another so scaffolding that is really really difficult so yeah uh, like I do think it's absolutely fine to actually identify someone, someone as a Pakistani male educator. But what, what the problem lies is where the inequality lies. Yes. Uh, it's fine. You are who you are. You, mm. can't, you, can't, you can't change where you were born. As uh, Ohan Tamuk says in his book Istanbul, he goes, "Would I wish that I was, uh, you know, a taller, stronger, handsome, smaller, shorter, whatever? Would I, would I have uh, preferred to have been a female?" He said, um, "But this is my fate, and it makes no sense parting with it. Mm. We are, we are who we are. But it's where." the kind of inequalities lie or the racism, whatever, the Islamophobia, whatever you want to yes. call it, the discrimination lies, that's where it all goes wrong. Mm. But honestly, like, straight, I've got so many stories, like, someone who, whom I know, 
like she was the only girl in the class who wore a hijab and the teacher called her plus is unbelievable isn't uh, it where you start with that like you know like that's just one little example mm, absolutely it's like Absolutely, and I think when we do get a chance to talk about Islamophobia and sort of experience mm. that we've had, they are verified either through personal experience or what we've heard and what we've seen from teachers that are very similar to us in many ways, in many, many ways. So I think one question that really uh, that clearly came across earlier that was really, really important to me, someone asked, someone asked me, does it help or hinder being a Pakistani British male and how can it help and hinder us in the context that we find ourselves? Because I think personally there's a lot of, not baggage, baggage is the wrong word, there's a lot of pressure in our position within the community as people who have stepped out of the immediate realm of working in a self-employed job or some someone who's worked directly within the community. So our position in British society has extra emphasis on this, extra pressures, I think. I agree, but at the same time, I, I do think the opposite as well. Like, I believe like I am in a hugely privileged position Absolutely. being a Pakistani Muslim male mm. teacher. I do, because number one, being a teacher by default, you're a, you're a role model there. Once you're in the classroom teaching whatever subject, it may be maths, sociology, whatever, you're automatically a role model. Mm. Now, let, let's put on, you said baggage is, you know, lack of a better term, but let's use the word baggage. Mm. Let's add the baggage now, I'm Pakistani. So I, automatically, I'm a role model to every Pakistani in the room. Yes. So I'm Muslim, I'm, I'm already a role model to every Muslim mm. in the room. So I, I do I do love my job in the sense that it's a huge privilege. Like, look, look at results they had. So many students emailing me saying, Sir, can you please call me? I need your advice. <laughs> they, they emailed me instead of going through the school email. Mm. You know what I mean? So that's a huge privilege for me. Uh, hindrance, I think, hindrance, like me personally, uh, in terms of me working, I don't think I've suffered any hindrance, what have you. But speak honestly, from my brother's perspective, uh, he's a football coach. He, he's felt it firsthand. Um, uh, amongst my family, friends whom I know, they, they have suffered uh, in the workplace. But me personally, I haven't, so I can't say that. Or I was pegged back, I'm not sure, too, because of you know, where I'm from. But I know it exists. I've seen it. I've, I've seen I've seen the racial element comes towards me. I've, I've, I've abused for the discrimination. We've all had it. Yes. It's, it's, it's happened so many times that memories become easy. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think one thing that Ahmed, I'll be very honest with you, whenever any experience of Islamophobia or racism happens, you become numb to it. You develop a desensitized sort of attitude where it's not it shouldn't be expected but you kind of you kind of developed a, a pedagogical toolkit how to deal with it in the classroom which it shouldn't be the case but we had a teacher last week who uh, lgbtq from lgbtq background she said very similar you develop ways of dealing with it when you shouldn't have to have those ways the protocol should be top down not bottom up yeah, yeah. i can't articulate that any better yeah so Ahmed, one of the things that's really, really important, and I really pick, I picked up on really, really early, was the underachievement of Pakistani British boys. So um, we did uh, Sanam Khan did a fantastic, fantastic, fantastic mm -hmm. webinar not too long ago on the entire how we can engage these boys, how we can support these boys. I was looking through statistics earlier as well. Uh, the Asian sort of category, so Chinese, Indian, Pakistanis are at the bottom. Mm. One the question that I was asked as well, and I've been asked this quite regularly. Do you think, how can we tackle this underachievement? Also, is it fair for us to project achievement in inverted commas in the white British sense on Pakistani British boys who may want to achieve in different ways through different means? For example, my brothers, for example, they work in the family business. That's their version of success for me who's going to university. So is there an imperialistic view of success or should we all adhere to that? Sorry, that was uh, a lot of questions. No, it's fine. Like... I really do like the question, but there's no one solution fits all. No, um, what, what lens are you? It's, it's absolutely you have to say what lens are you looking through? Mm. You know, is, is there a holistic lens where you can see everything in one and then uh, uh, you know funnel it down to success? Um, I think that I think the answers in the question is well, like first define what success is, isn't absolutely. it? Which, which lens are you looking through? Mm. Uh, like I said, your brothers they are successful in life, so they do. Of success, but if you're looking specifically through the prism of education, mm. success is obviously generally speaking getting your grades, getting into the next step via your education route, isn't it? Yeah, uh, like the underachievement of Pakistani boys is absolutely shocking and it hurts because obviously we're from that um domination as well. But um, I think where you might have the not non successful stories, there's huge success stories, there are, there are absolutely yeah, look, celebrated. 
Yeah, of course, we need to be the. And, and I think, I do think this kind of focus on this underachievement, underachievement, underachievement mm. takes away from this shining light mm. of the achievement that's happened across the board. Absolutely. Um, um, my, my, my dad's first generation, on my dad's side, my, on my mum's side, she's second generation, but we we're all ed- university educated. Mm. My brother works for the NHS, he's a project manager. I, I'm a teacher, my brother's a football coach, my sister's got a religious studies degree. Mm. We're all university educated. So, isn't, is that not success by you know the imperial, imperialist lens? Yeah. I mean, not only that, I have, I have cousins who who stopped at 16 who are extremely wealthy mm. when it comes to businesses mm. and doing everything by the proper means in this society. Is that not success? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, but then, if, sorry, sorry, it's true. Uh, if no, you no, flip the you table, if you flip the table, like I, I know someone, a very, very close friend of mine, when he was 16, he got his GCSEs, he got into college, and at the last year of college, he said to me, Ahmed, look, I'm going to be the first person in my family to go to university. So you had the drive at that moment. You had the goal. You wanted to go to university because he wanted to be the first person in his whole family to get to university. But within a couple of months, he dropped out. And then he he didn't end up going to university and he became a taxi driver. And no disrespect to taxi driver, my own father's a taxi driver. But you can see, he had that route initially. Yeah. What was the diversion? Mm. And, yeah. and I still don't pick it to this day. And I think it was lack of mentorship. Mm. Um, the, uh, when he went to college, asked the people there, he goes, so look, I'm thinking I'm going down the law route. What do you think? And they said, uh, I don't think you'd be good at law. They didn't give a second option. They didn't give an alternative route. Mm. And I think that sort of kind of shattered his dreams. Absolutely. It's about fostering those aspirations, isn't it? And I think when they see people in the community who have used the meritocratic education system, like my, myself and yourself in the classroom, and many others as well, they begin to develop their aspirations more thinking they've done it and we can do it as well. I think once it's cut off, like you say, once the aspirations are cut off, it does create a... I've, oh, I've read about the lost generation of Pakistani British boys. The, you know, there's a, a, the future generations that are coming through as well. They're, they're disillusioned, disengaged, is dangerous. You know, all the stereotypes that get used quite regularly. But how do we put them back on track? How do we make them have higher aspirations? Like I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very blessed. I'm third generation, very fortunate where... Well, in terms of like finance, family have been, alhamdulillah, very, very, very fortunate in, term, in that regard as well. My father works, my brothers work, I work as well. But I know people in a similar, similar sort of situation as myself didn't pursue the educational route, but they've, like your friends, have been successful in other areas. That deserves to be celebrated in itself. We should be looking at the community as a, a wider structure, a wider economic structure that is self-sufficient as, as such. Uh, I, I totally agree. I, and um, I think at the beginning you said what? What can be done? I, I do think mentorship is absolutely key. Now, going back to being a teacher and a role model, mm. that is unbelievably powerful and, and, and important. Uh, and I think being a Pakistani Muslim teacher from the area, I'm very fortunate that I do command a lot of respect from the younger students when they come in through the doors. Mm. They see me as a community teacher. They yes. see me as a community man. Mm. They see me as a community family man. They see me at the mosque, at, at the Friday prayers, at the normal prayers. They see me at the funerals. They see me at the weddings. Mm. So they got a face to look at and think, like, we can go and speak to him, he's one of us. Mm, and, like, I've been through this, I, I still live in, you know, my area, all the miss, you know, we've all heard about it on the news and lockdowns. Yes, and yes, we know about Blah, 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 and, and we'll, we'll talk about the total racism going on in there yeah, in a minute. Yeah. But um, I think mentorship is absolutely key. Like, whenever, every year, there'll always be a group of students that I don't teach, I don't, I don't actually know who they are, but they're coming to my room and say, sir, What's happening? This I'm getting these grades. I'm thinking about applying to unis. What do you think I should do? Mm. I'm thinking like I, I don't teach any of the subjects that you're going through, but the fact they look to me and they turn to me for advice and help, yep. and I, that's my I feel hugely privileged by it mm. because it's mentorship. Absolutely. When you when you come when you come into educate and help someone grow, mm. there's nothing more powerful than it. Absolutely, I think and, you're right. I think, yeah, you're right. I think um, more. Um, People from different denominations in schools and they're encouraged to you know, be in certain positions, mm. encourage them and, you know, have the teachers grow into leaders, have, have the students grow into mm. leaders within the school um, uh, atmosphere. I think that will have a huge knocking effect downwards. And people will start thinking, oh, I want to be like that student. Oh, I want to be like that teacher. Oh, I want to be like that head teacher. I want to be like that governor. Mm. Or someone to look up to thinking, right, I'm in this position, I'm in this field. Is there anyone that I can see? Like, you know, I can actually go to for help or actually I can, I can almost emulate. Absolutely. I think one thing that I always found that someone told me this very, very early is they said to me, Shweb, look for people that are 
gate openers, not gatekeepers. I didn't understand that until very recently where I realised more and more that when I walk around my community, very blessed, I work within my community, the school up the road from me. You're right, the boys see you buying fruit. You know, the, the families will pull up to you, put their, are you okay? They'll put their arm around you. They'll invite you around for tea. They'll, 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 they'll try and break all the safeguarding rules. They will because yeah. they've got that feeling that you're part of, you know, their collective culture. You understand what they're like and you feel their grievances as well. That's what they really want. They want that under, that bridging, that disconnect. And often I find when, particularly when staff speak to me, I'm talking about white British staff, they often say to me, Shweb, you know, do you mind doing this? Do you mind talking to these students? I don't mind it. They don't, I don't think they deliberately mean to do it in a tokenistic way. It is they've acknowledged that they can't communicate to those kids. Unfortunately, they can they can try and sit and talk to them and try and bridge the disconnect. But we're in such a privileged position where we can do that on a day-to-day basis. We live their intellectual world every day and they see they see energy, they see inspiration in that and they see authenticity and it's really important. Yeah, I spoke to my mum who was a TA around 30, 30 years ago and she, she left around 25 years ago and now she's actually going back into work. Oh wow. She's not, she's not, she's not worked for about 25 years mm. going back into work and I actually mm-hmm. spoke to her I said mum I'm, I'm on a podcast um, about achievement with any boys have you, have you got any input at all? Mm. She goes I'll tell you something she, she said she was a translator initially mm. yeah so you can imagine 30 years ago a lot of parents didn't speak English I can imagine really. yeah I can imagine yeah. so she goes I was the only translator in the school mm. and I used to say to them um, I have children, this is what I do, blah, blah, maybe you should try these with your, kid, your kids, etc. Because initially I wasn't getting through, and when they saw me in the community, mm. being a normal person, going about my day, then they think, oh, maybe she's not just translating, she's actually giving us advice. Mm. And when, when they saw her, you know, going about her way, then thought, right, um, okay, she's an educator, what can we do? And then they used to send their sons in school to my mum, so my mum could just speak to them about anything they needed. Mm. And she said, when the funding was cut uh, from the school and she couldn't translate anymore, mm. um, she goes, the parents said that they noticed a decline. Yes. So, mm. and obviously that, that comes down to funding, etc. blah, blah, blah. But the reality is that that certain segment of society was not catered for. Mm. All they needed was a translator. So that when they spoke, when the teacher might speak to the parents, they can go by my mum to get the message across. It was having an impact. Absolutely. It's just language. Absolutely. It's language. Absolutely. Um, so there are so many factions and elements to discuss. Absolutely. You know I mean, yeah. One thing, Ahmed, that I find really astounding at times is we have this huge moral panic about exclusions of certain ethnic groups or you know disadvantage of certain ethnic groups. The the p the only p word and I'm going to say this very openly is prevent when we refer to our Pakistani British boys and and, and I find it astounding. And there's a layer of I'm going to say thinly veiled racism and Islamophobia where we have these conversations, almost this idea that they'll just step into their family business or they're not, they're, they're, they don't need to be part of British society. I think the fact that, we, you know, my family's been living here, what, a granddad came in 54, so we're looking at, you're the mathematician, what, 70 odd years? To think that, you know, we're able to hold these conversations now in a public forum, we're still talking about underachievement when the Indians and the, I know it's a different culture, when the Indians and Chinese are doing so, so well in education, why is there such a chasm between us and them? And when we talk about Asian students, it's a very big, broad group, isn't it? Where we can say, oh, all the Asians are doing really well. But within there, there's inequality. Even like between our own community, there's a gap between Sunni and Shia students in their mentality. There's a gap between, you know, uh, Bangladeshi and Pakistani boys. There's a gap in a change in their mentality. So referring to these big homogenous groupings can be dangerous because as we know, it's very layered and multi-layered. We can only we can get through to some people, but we can't get through to everyone, can we? No, you're absolutely right. Um, like when you say Asian, like Asia is massive. It is. I mean, it it's is. like come on, like yeah, you yeah. have. It's like it's like one more say. When we go to school, yeah, I'll go to European school. Yeah. <laughs> like come on, uh, make, make sense of it. Where like, are you really from? Yeah. Yeah, can, can you direct it, please? Yeah. You know what I mean? But there are. It's um, it's huge. Um, but when you go specifically to Pakistani boys under achievement, mm. there is no one shoe that fits all. No, there isn't. No. You, you know, first of all, you and I are Kashmiri, yeah. Mm, Those yes. who don't know, Kashmiri is split into three parts. There's a Chinese part, Indian part, Pakistani part. We are Pakistani administered. Mm. We are ancestrally Kashmiri, and that's why we say we are Pakistani because we are administered at the moment. It's another discussion mm. about politics we have another day, yeah. Mm. But um, just just Kashmir itself, how huge is it? Absolutely. Someone's done a PhD. Um, I think they made it into a book. I think it's called "From Textiles to Taxis." 
because a lot of uh, our you know old generation that came here were textile workers, mm-hmm. and they came here, and a lot of them did become taxi drivers. Yep. And it's a, it's a fascinating um, book. Um, so many people came as businessmen. So many people came as taxi drivers. So many people came as labourers, as farmers. Mm. And you got to remember, if if five six generations of your ancestry has never ever have had a formal education, mm. you got to have some kind of understanding and sympathy towards you know this the first generation coming to school that. They might struggle, they might need that extra support. Yep. But as someone might come, they have, they've had six, seven years of formal education back mm. home. And then, and then they come and they're going to fly through. Mm. So I think it's important for teachers to understand the differences and engage how parents, you know, communicate with the school. Mm. But I do think commun- communication is key. Absolutely. Um, no, totally, I remember, totally. yeah, uh, Sandin also said in their CPD, I thought, which was one of the best I've ever heard in the achievement of, of any boys, um, engagement with parents. Mm. And involved, like, Constant I think she was saying about the trips where she there was a trip going on in the school and only 20% of the Pakistani boys, something like that, a low percentage, um, actually replied and said they're going. Then after chasing, after communicating, she got 100% turnout. Yep, yep. So it's as simple as that. Mm. But the fact that if, if someone's going to be hesitant and say, mm. I'm just going to judge them straight away and say, well, they're not going to turn up. Mm. Already, you're already discriminating by thinking that they're not going to turn up because Absolutely. someone said examination. But if you just open a channel of communication, mm. they'll be receptive. Mm, absolutely and having bridging that sort of that, that default communication you're absolutely correct is really necessary and i've always found when i was at school whenever the pakistani british boys were pulled into meetings it was never to celebrate eid or you know to, to, to mention anything positive that was going on it's either to condemn and to to vilify and you know that alienation in that us and them it creates you know that british society is against us we are British. We have got British passports. We've been living here for 60, 70 years. Our, our ancestors, actually, grandparents, were actually invited here by the Brits to po- aid that post-war recovery. You know, millions of Muslim soldiers died in both world wars. So we need to look at the, the history before we look at the, our position here, right, here and now. And the underachievement of Pakistani British boys, you're right, you're right. They, but I think bridging that disconnect is really important between home. How many parents, our parents union, have, I've been to so many parents unions where you're talking to a parent and they're oblivious to their child's education. They've not had a phone call home. They're not aware of absences. They're not aware of any pastoral issues. And then there's the assumption they don't care. I can assure you, you know, what, what do they call them? Um, what, what did granddad used to call me? Putter and Bachara. You know, yeah. blessing all around after every word. I can assure you our, our communities do care. But you're right, there's that disconnect where we think, you know, these institutions are not there to cater for us. And once that disconnect starts, it permeates all the way down to our ability to even apply for jobs later in the future. Yeah, and, yeah this can open a huge kind of worms. I mean, like, in a positive light, just, um, for example, school itself, leadership, if, if, like, as a member of staff, Obviously, now, this is the more smallest of cases. Like, for example, I've been working at my school for six years. Someone might be working at the school for 12 years you know, from the same denomination. Yep. And yet every year, they're getting a... And on the application form, it's clearly written Muslim. So it's, it'll be nice to assume that they don't drink alcohol. Every year, you get given a bottle of alcohol to celebrate, you know, your year. It's like, get the point. Like, if you're a leader, yeah. you need to know who you're leading. Mm. And eventually, you just get fed up and think, you know, this, these people don't give a monkey... No, they just no, don't. Right. They literally don't. Like, mm. I even said it totally like, oh, like, it's very nice of you, but um, I don't drink alcohol. Yeah. Make sure they give it, give it again. You just get fed up. And then I got bottles at home to use them as a doorstopper. You know what I mean? I emptied the alcohol and used the bottle as a doorstopper. <laughs> but, no, you're right. Honestly, you're right. You're right. But, but, it's, but institutionally, that's where it's going to stem from. Is it? It's going Absolutely. to stem from your leaders. If you see them just making the smallest of effort, it means huge. It has huge positive ramification doesn't it absolutely absolutely and i think also brother we're also looking at how we bridge that disconnect in doing it in a tokenistic way like i remember eid assembly and i was asked to lead the lead i'm the only muslim member of staff in my school they were like oh you're gonna lead the eid assembly i was like but you don't look like a muslim i was like okay what do you want me to wear like should i wear my friday eid attire you know what what, what are you looking for and it was it was really awkward. I was standing up there doing the assembly. And I was reading. I was reading off a piece of paper. The lady goes, "Oh, you must know it off by heart. You must know all this." So I was like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm a scholar of Islam, and I clearly, you know, I know everything, don't I?" But again, it's that non-tokenistic way. How do we celebrate cultures without upsetting or offending people or? hindering their their position in the school because i don't want to be labeled as the you know the resident muslim you know he knows everything about islam it creates negative connotations as well i think you said it there you don't want to be labeled but do you know what is i do believe it's like you me 
nearly all it, Muslim educators mm. will be so happy to take questions. Yes, absolutely. If someone just asks, we we we'll have a giggle about it. Say, you know, this is, this, is, this is the script. But it's when they say, I bet you know this, and I bet you this, yes. you're gonna do this. And it's like, oh, calm down, mate. But it's like if you ask, it's, it's actually quite warming because you know when someone they don't know and they, and they ask you something, you actually like, oh, they're actually asking me. I'm honoured. I'm flattered. But uh, that's what I mean. It's just ask the questions, but don't label straight away thinking I bet he liked this or I bet he doesn't like this. Mm, absolutely. I mean, it's, yeah. So it's, it's it's a fine line, isn't it? it just mm-hmm. it's, it's it's easy to kind of float between them. But it, it is hilarious sometimes. It is. Yeah, I remember we did a um, a samosa making competition in school, and it was uh, they call it filo pastries, and I was asked to join in. Um, well, I, I, you, yeah. I put pomegranate and stuff like that. I made it horrible, like mangoes and everything. They were like, "Oh, do you really have this?" So like, yeah, yeah, this is what we have at home, you know. Yeah, shall I make a curry for you next week? But it's one of those things where sometimes I think when when, when we get it from students, we can fight those misconceptions in the classroom. When we continue getting from adults, and I'm, I'm talking about adults, you know, I'm talking adults, adults at like 30s and 40s. If they've not managed to challenge their own implicit biases at that age. I worry about the the sort of education they're delivering. You know, it's, it's concerning. We should be constantly in reflection about how we talk to one another and then the conversations we're having with our staff as well because insensitivity creates problems, I think. That's one of the biggest layers. 100%. And just like I said, you know, communications between staff and how we talk to each other and stuff. For example, someone very close to me, and so this is a, this is verified by myself and other members of that school. It's not my school, of, of, of a school. Um, Muslim woman, fully qualified, doctor, master's level, blah blah blah. She's doing a job. Cool. Wears a scarf. So one, she was, so she has um, a four lesson day. Yep. It's um, so she has full four lessons. She goes into the, the RS staff room. She sits down. It's just her and the head of department in the room. Obviously, she's wearing a scarf. She's feeling a bit hot. She realizes only another female member of staff in the room. So she takes her scarf off. Gets gets a bit of air. Yeah. Of the head of the department looked over and says, "You know what? It'd be nice if students saw this IT." Now, like, come on, you are a head. Of when I heard that, like, not only a calm person, but I was extremely, I was really angry inside. Of course, of course. And I thought if someone said that to me, like, mm. with my personality, I think I'd back back. Yeah. But judging who that person was, you know. He was just calm, just thrown from it and just giggled it. But mm. when that person came home and then we all heard about it and mm. we're like, then then she realised like the run, the watch actually and then mm. but that, a few days after that she was very upset, very down. And it's understandable, like why would you say something like that? You're like, you're a head of department for like fifteen odd years, you're you're a senior member of staff. Mm. Know what you know what you're saying to your staff. Absolutely. That, 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 that is just, not, let's call it a spade, that's, that's Islamophobic. Absolutely, absolutely. And Islamophobia can come in the most insidious ways. We don't talk about it very often because there's other phobias or antis that we refer to so regularly. But Islamophobia, you know, it's very much top down. And I remember when we had um, in, in the press where our, our prime minister said certain words and certain comments. And I had a, a Muslim TA in my classroom and I had a student call her a letterbox. I sent him out, said to him, you know, why do you call her that? Oh, you know, Boris said it as well. And I just thought to myself, that permeates top down, that culture. If we uh, model that behavior, that that racism, that Islamophobia, that hatred for one another in our day to day interactions, as adults, children will pick up on it. And we're in the classroom. We're in a privileged position to educate young people. We should be doing everything we can to prevent that happening. And you're right. I think you're absolutely right. That that, that member of staff, you know, must have been left traumatized. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, another as a citizenship class. Um, uh, um, a, a white British student said, "Oh, in, in, I'm not going to uh, mince any words. All the Pakis are only here to take the benefits." Mm. Yeah. Now, the teacher just said, "Be quiet," and carried on. So you're just implicitly allowing racism to exist. Do you know what I mean? It's like uh, even if you said, "Look, be quiet. What you said is wrong. I'm going to speak just lesson." That'll give some type of. Um, comfort or confidence to the student that was actually bullied because yep. of it. The teacher just said, be quiet and carry on with the lesson. Mm. I mean, it's like, uh, you need, as an educator, we do need, need to know our responsibilities and mm. privilege that we are. Like, everything we say, no one's perfect and not everything you're going to say is going to be absolutely correct, but everything you do say has an impact. Yep. And when, when certain 
instances like that happen, you need to speak up and say what's wrong about it and what's the right way to deal with it. Mm. You know what I mean? There, there's so many, like, we could, we, could, we could talk about these stories all day long. Literally, we could write a book on them, literally. You know, yeah, me, and like, me, me and my Islamophobia or something like that. Literally, right now. I'll tell you another one. This is someone who's, who's very close to me. There's an extremely disruptive child in, in the class. Um, first, it started with just, you know, being low-level disruption. Then, obviously, the, the classic answering back, mm. um, not, not doing the working class. Uh, this teacher, she's going back to SLT, um, not getting any support. Next thing is um, that student is growing because of, you know, um, a woman with, you know, an, an exaggerated scarf, you know, writing next to it, what's hidden under there. Are there any bombs? Blah 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 blah. Given given that mean kind of terroristy look, yeah. So that's that's one thing. Going to SLT, SLT just taking the picture away, throwing the bin, not doing anything, no sanctioning, nothing. This carries on, carries on, carries on, carries on. Next thing you know, that student's threatening this teacher outside the staff room, saying, "You come out here, I'm gonna do X, Y, and Z, pull your scarf off." Blah 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 blah. Goes to SLT after a few months. SLT member comes to this, um, you know, this Muslim female teacher and says, um, "You know that student." Um, obviously, I'm trying to scrape out the names. You know yeah. that student X who's uh, always disruptive in your class. The reason why she's like that in your class is because her mother was married to a Pakistani and he left. I think that's the, that's just the way she is. Well, so all Pakistanis are supposed to be the same. Is that is that the? Yeah, but look, if, if someone if someone if someone said that to my wife or me, saying, "Oh, that's just uh, her her um, her father left in Pakistani and that's just the way she is." Look, number one, the drawings were an issue. Threatening behavior was an issue, and then the fact it's an SLT member mm. who says, Oh, it's her dad who's Pakistani and he left mm. her mum, therefore she's like this. Well, any excuse for racism, any excuse for silence for me is, is shocking. You know, you know what I'm like, you know. That's not like, even silence, that's actually promoting the behavior, in my opinion. Absolutely, it's implicitly saying it's okay, you know, you're happy yeah. to do that. It's not, we'll, we'll find an excuse. I remember when I was racially abused in a school, I was. Um, I was standing there, um, and a member, a member of staff, a senior member of staff, standing beside me. I walked in, walked into the, to a corridor area, and there's a group of students there, about ten of them, all boys. They were hurling racial abuse at me, you know, packing. So you can go on and on. One of them said, "Oh, he's got a bomb in his bag." Blah blah. Went to the classroom, sat down, and the head walked in. He goes, "Oh, that child's got ADHD. You can't say anything to him." That's my, all right, then, my, isn't it? My reply was, "So that's an excuse. You're going to use a yeah. a form of a." Uh, uh, um, a special educational need to excuse his behaviour. He's like, oh, it ends here and it stops here. There's no, no need for any statements. And I was just bemused. I thought to myself, you could have easily, you know, sanctioned the child, taken away, done a re-education. I was happy to take questions with that student as well. The fact that that autonomy was taken away from me, literally there and then, I just thought that there's no opportunity for me to edu- re-educate that child or get any sort of justice for what was said. Mm, no, you're just, you're not. And, but you've got, you've got to remember this album. You've got, you've got to kind of, I like and, and praise like the things that I've done absolutely right. Mm. So I, I know I, I know an issue where in, in a school sixth form there was an issue with prayer rooms and so the Muslims had a, had a prayer room in a certain department mm. and then there was a note that was found there. It said um, the walls are going to be painted with blood. So obviously people are like, okay, what's going on? This is pretty serious. This. Mm. So the first thing what happened is rumors spread around school and everyone's saying, oh, you know, the, everyone that prays is a, is a terrorist and. You know, we're going to do this and don't let them pray. Even staff were jumping on the bandwagon saying, don't let them pray, don't let them pray, stop doing. Mm-hmm. But um, head of a department, she's a white big lady, she goes, wait, 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 wait. I don't want anyone to say anything. It was in their department, the social science department. I don't want anyone to say anything until I got to the bottom of it. She mm-hmm. went, searched everyone, got to the bottom of it, and she found out that um, it was actually um, a white student with it. And said, so, why'd you write it? He goes, oh, I was just having a bit of fun. But she didn't stop there. She said to him, right, she had a right go at him. Mm. She totally said, look, what he did was wrong. All they're doing is praying and having a bit of meditation. Clean the room up afterwards. Don't leave any mess. None of them here are what, you, what you're saying what they are. Mm. So that, that was something that was done absolutely right. And all the Muslim teachers were like, extremely good, thinking, you know what? Like, mm. did it off, she did everything. She led the whole research off her own accord. And you know what I mean? So that, that's amazing. And, and, it, and it's kind of like, you think, thank you, like, you didn't have to do that, but they did. Absolutely. We've got to praise the positive good practice with the negative practice. We definitely, there is so much fantastic practice going. We've got so many fantastic educators. My old head of department, bless her, she was such a lovely lady. She was on maternity leave, Muslim lady. Whenever there was an incident of racism, she was so calm in how she dealt with it. She pulled the student aside to sit down, to have a proper discussion. 
should deal with it in such a in, in a compassionate way. That's how you have to deal with, especially young people. With adults, it's a completely different story. You'd have to go through more rigorous education, more sort of exposure to those sort of groups as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Ahmed, I've got one more question before we move up anywhere or another at all. You and I spoke about this whole downpegging of the Pakistani or South Asian family structure before. I always find whenever you tell people that you're living with your parents or you're living with your grandparents, particularly people are not from our community, there's almost like a stigma and a taboo that comes with it. Um, I think you you said the word downpegging. How? Why do you think that exists, and how do you think how do you think Muslim or Pakistan Asian people should deal with it? Because often it can feel as though like there's a lot of pressure and burden on you to succumb to the you know, the typical normal heteronormative family structure that we have here in Britain. Yeah, Joyce. Whenever that question has been asked to me, mm. I say half of the people asking genuinely, mm. half of the people give a face of disgust that I live at home with my mum. Well, I, used to, I used to live at home with my mum. So yeah. when I started teaching, before I was married, I was living at home with my mum. I used to come mm. to work. And then in 2016, I got married. And in 2017, I bought my own house. Mm. That's just the way it was. Like, But before that, yeah, I was a working man and I was staying at home. I was at uni, I was staying at home. Mm. But they look at you as if... And I, and I genuinely... And I, mean, I mean, it's genuinely like... when. Some people have said it, they just ask that, you know, you should live with your mum, oh, that's fair enough. Do you pay rent, etc. fair enough. But some people are like, you, you'd really stay at home? I don't like, know. Well, yeah. <laughs> your mum and dad, but what would you do at university? And I said, oh, really? Like, and they give you that face of disgust and you yes. feel very uncomfortable inside and, and your heart, you know, it, it clenches. Yeah. And you think, and, and when, I, when I was that 21, 22-year-old lad, I used to be like, oh, yeah, but I'll move out soon. Oh, yeah, but sometimes I'd stay outside. But now I'm like, you know what? It's a source of pride. Yes, I think people should say, look, you know what? I'm at the servitude of my mum and dad every single day. Yeah. Whenever they need, need me to knock on the door. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I, I, that's it. And not, not only that, I've saved a lot of money. Mm. Not only that. Whenever my mum and dad need financial help, personal support, whatever support, I'm always there. Absolutely. Why should I be ashamed of that? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I shouldn't. And, 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 and the fact that you're looking down upon me is something wrong with you, not me. That's mm. just the way I choose to live my life. I'm not harming anyone. Mm. In fact, I'm looking after someone. Absolutely, absolutely. I always find when people say to me, oh, Shweb, you still live with your grandmother? Like, yeah, she's, she's in a wheelchair, you know, we've got to look after her. You still live and, with your grandmother? Yeah, my and as we say, al- alhamdulillah, for such opportunities, you know, exactly. praise be to God. Because whenever someone elder goes, you always think, you know what, that, that person is a legend. They, mm. they've, come, they've, they've established such a legacy, I wish I could spend more time with them. Definitely. You always say, I wish I could ask them another two questions. Mm. But, but the fact that you're living with them and all that history, the rich history and the journeys they've been on, they've been yes. through partition, they've been through probably by a, you know, a 14-day boat, they've gone through the Suez Canal, they have so many stories, and yep. when they came here and how they were egged and all sorts, you know, you, you learn so much, mm. so many things, and the fact that you've got the opportunity and what a blessing it is, Absolutely. I think we should have honour and pride in it, and it, pride, now, yeah. now, that, now that I'm older, I've got family, got my own house, I'm more established, I've got this kind of like attitude where I just think, you know, I'm very proud of who I am now. Mm. Everything that's happened in my life, where I'm from, my ancestry, mm. I'm extremely proud and I speak up for it. Mm. And that's happened many a time, it's happened very recently as well, where they say, oh, you lived at home until you were 26. Yeah, and what a great time I had, and now that I've got my own, I'm still having a great time. You know what, I don't live around the corner. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I, and I think we shouldn't shy away by saying, yeah, okay. and... Obviously, obviously, buying the extremities and you know people having difficult relationships, etc. What yeah. you know is that generally, when you live in your family, hopefully, we hope that it's a, you know a nice warm house. Mm-hmm. And do not take pride in it. Be happy with it. If you're if you're actually comfortable in your house, say yeah, I'm very comfortable living at home with my mother and father. Mm-hmm. I'm very comfortable that they're living with their mother and father. I'm very comfortable that in my own my cultural tradition and my religious tradition, the servitude of parents is put you know up there in the highest pedestal that it must be done. And the fact that I'm honouring that. It gives me satisfaction. Absolutely. It gives me spiritual fulfillment and Absolutely. something to be extremely proud of. Mm-hmm. Definitely, yeah. something that should definitely be celebrated. You know that I often find it when friends say to me, "Oh, Shreb, you know, you know, um, you know, why, why don't you move out?" I'm like, "When the time's right, I definitely will. There's no doubt about it." But whilst my parents are old and vulnerable, no one else can. Oh, there's care homes available. Our community is not built that way. We have not managed to move beyond the, our vicinity of our, our own children caring for, for their parents. And you're right, it is a privilege. I remember, you know, granddad passed away in 2015, my role model, someone that I love dearly. I would do anything just to, you know, you know, um, I used to always say, oh, Potter, can you massage my feet for me? I'd, yeah, go, yeah. I'd love to do that again. And if I moved yeah, out at 17, I would never have had the opportunities. Of course. It is, it is a privilege, definitely, definitely is a privilege, it's something we should hang on to. And I think one thing I like that me and you, we're on a journey now, we're beginning to understand more about our heritage and 
yeah. We we can learn about you know we don't learn about really in school, but the whole you know, the whole idea of colonialism, empire, learning about how our, how our community once existed and lived beside other communities to when the Brits arrived to, to where we are now and developing that understanding and pride is really important. We've got to be proud of where we come from because no one else will shine that pride upon us. We have to do it ourselves. No, you, you can't you can't choose when, where you were born. Mm. Can't choose it. It's, it's just something obviously it might take some some time for certain people to accept it. But just a reality it's a reality like you are an amalgamation of so many generations of people. Yes. Yes. Right now, you're, you're like I'm 30 years old. How old are you? Today? Was it 28? 28. Yeah, you. It's many years you've lived. Like everything you've done before this 20, you know, before this 28 years, it's, it's a story for you. You know, you're creating your own legacy, and we should be proud of who we are, where we come from, everything that you do. Mm. You know what I mean? And joy back to this family um, structure. Remember you were saying like now it's like it's even played upon even more with. Like they're saying in older mode, uh, COVID's been transmitted with, um, in, because there's too many people in the house. Um, obviously, that's what they mean. But obviously, it's worded a bit better than that. But well, it's, it's having a slight big power family structure, isn't it? Yeah, you know what they're trying big. to say, don't you? Yeah, you yeah. know, you can tell. There's implicit biases there. They, they don't want to say it so openly because it sounds racist. But there are comments but, but, but We are all careful. My, my, my father-in-law, someone, he's, he's on the... Um, you know, he's got um, the... But underlying health issues that we need to protect him and so on. So, so we do it. You know, yeah, there's like if we are unfairly targeted. Like for for example, recently uh, there was a funeral in Blackburn, weren't there? There were 250 people. I think it was like on the 10th of June or something. Obviously, they weren't allowed to do it, and at least so they were called out for it. At least so. Yeah. Two days later, there was one of the most famous footballers in Leeds passed away, and there were thousands of people. And if you look at the headlines, it was 250 people at this funeral during coronavirus. Whereas two days later, it was great turnout from the city of Leeds for such a legend. Yeah, that, that's like, like mm, come on. You know what it is? I think someone called Hassan Patel, who you must follow on Twitter as well, lovely, lovely lad, he says it's called inconsistent energy. How, like, for example, we couldn't read Eden the Mars this year together. Like first time in twenty eight years, I've not read Eden the Mars in the Mustard. Never, yeah. I could never imagine it. We used to read it every. It's one of my favourite times of my life. It is. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. It's an amazing experience. You come home, you give everyone salam, you shake hands with people. It's an incredible experience. But a day later, I saw people how packed in those beaches, and I'm thinking to myself, I can't go and pray to my Lord. I can't go and pray with my family. But and, and do it socially distanced. Yeah, exactly. And I, but I can go to a beach and, and, and strip half naked and, and, and sit there for five, six hours trying to tan my already d- dark Asian face. So, do you know what, 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 what cracked me up here was the remember the V Day and the Congo and the. Um, yeah, of course. That was hilarious, man. Yeah, it was. That's all right. That's all right. But I, I can't do social distance prayer on the street. Yeah, it's unbelievable. They can go to Barnard Castle, can't they? But we can't go up the road to Gosia Masjid, which is... It's, it's insanity, isn't it? Absolute insanity. Armour, um, for the purpose of time, brother, I want to talk about Malcolm X, because if we don't talk about him, we'll we'll, dread, we'll regret it forever. Um, so if those of those people are listening, myself and Ahmed, uh, one of our main role models are... You know, more contemporary role models is Malcolm X. Uh, we both read the autobiography, both take a lot of inspiration from Malcolm. I spoke to Tori Obono about it on previous podcasts. Ahmed, what's so special about Malcolm X for you? With Malcolm, it, it, it's a bit of a long journey. I think the first time I read the book, I was like, this is a good book. Mm. And then I think I went, I went through that journey when uh, I think I read it when I was around 21, 22. And then I think during that period of my life, I think I had a lot of um, thoughts inside, like, who are you really? Do you know I mean? I remember David, uh, you've got, you got to understand the context of it as well. Like, I remember David Cameron said that. Um, Something to do with English, like everyone has to speak English and he's tried to impose it on certain, uh, you know, especially the older generation that mm. came and said, look, you need to learn how to speak English. And I was like, yeah, you need to learn how to speak English. Like, really, I to go along. But then, I was, in my mind, I was thinking, like, really? And then I saw a new segment of, of an old lady, I think she was in the 70s, and she said, look, we came into this country invited, yeah? We established families, we established communities. All of my children have been educated fully in the English language, they speak everything. I came here without speaking English and I've established this. What come and tell me now that I need to learn English? I thought, whoa, Lord has mercy. That, what a beatdown. And that really, really resonated with me. And then I thought, hmm. And I, I, I was going through, like, not an identity crisis, but I can't think of a better word. I was, I was actually like, I'm a Pakistani, I'm a English, I'm a Muslim, I'm not, I'm yes, a Muslim first, yes. Pakistani first, I'm a British first, I'm a Muslim first. I was going through these thoughts in my head. Then I read his book and something settled in me. I thought, hmm, I need to start being more proud. But I still wasn't sure. 
obviously life took its course and I started reading more again and I became very comfortable with it myself and then I read the book again about five six years later and everything just clicked everything just clicked just how you know I think me and you talked about it now how he was Malcolm Little and then it became yes, yeah. bright red and yeah. then it become then become then become yeah, Malcolm the pastor the minister and then he became Al-Hajj Malik Al-Shabazz every, every, every single journey he went through had a huge amount of substance in it Mm. had a huge amount of ingredients in it that at the end it created such a huge and beautiful person we did and um, yeah and I remember reading it and thinking right I'm gonna try and read this not as someone who's proud of Malcolm as a Muslim mm. I'm just trying I'm gonna try and read this from a different lens like I was let's say I was a obviously I, I can't ever be one like but let's try and think if I was a white person who's never ever known about the struggles of Malcolm X let's mm. see how, I, how I'd feel if I read it I was, you know, I was thinking, oh, this is quite uncomfortable. Because some of the stuff he says, let's, let's, let's not, you know, on the much of our hard core. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. And especially when he was, you know, Nation of Islam and that kind of thing and stuff that he said, I think, oh, this is actually making me feel very uncomfortable when I look through that lens. But then as I kept reading, I'm thinking, okay, he must be getting somewhere. He must be getting somewhere. And then when he hit chapter 17. Yes. And then he goes to his sister and says, look, I want to go for Hajj. Mm. And then he goes onto the plane and he says, oh, I've seen a blue person, a white person, a black person, a brown person. And we're all there as brothers. Mm. And you can just tell his heart has changed. Absolutely. And then he he realized what the reality of life is you can't be, you know, discriminatory. You mm. like, yes, I'm a black person and you know what I should be proud of that person, the white person, he's my brother. Mm. And I thought, oh, do you know what? This the, the way it all comes together, I thought, oh, that for me is like Malcolm's success. Everything he's been through, the you know, the issues with his identity, the the issue is with him being a, a, an extreme person on the far right, you know, with a certain organisation coming back to the centre and being balanced. I thought everything is a road to success. That's why I think Malcolm is to me just everything you do, as long as you hit success at the end, everything is important. Absolutely. Even though it might be wrong at times, but it's a lesson you learn from it moving forward. If everything's correct at times, you you'd be appreciative of it and show gratitude and keep moving forward. Absolutely. And to think, brother, you know, for me, when I'm, I'll be 39, 11 years time for you in nine years time, Malcolm died at 39, the legacy that he lived, he did more in 39 years, some people do in 69 years. So the fact that he achieved so much, and he kept, like you say, he kept reflecting on his journey, changing his perspective, willing to incorporate people into a sense of unity. That's true Islam. That's the Islam that you and I follow. That's what? true brotherhood. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, it was a spiritual journey that he followed from a little boy you know, who was confused, his dad got, you know, killed by the KKK to a street like, Yeah, like, you, you, you got to look at everything contextually, you have to, you can't look at things in isolation, like, all his uncles, bar one, only one died of natural causes, the rest were either killed, were killed, all the rest were killed, or, you know, hung, lynched, one of them was lynched, mm. one, you know, trained, his dad on a train track, you know what I mean, it's like, that's how, that's how he was born, mm. and then his mother used to give him beatings because he was a fairest. And also, everything, everything has a part to play in this story. And like I said, it's only 39 years. Mm. And what an impact, what a legacy he's, Absolutely. he's had. Absolutely. I remember when we were in history lessons and people say, oh, Shweb, you know, Gandhi's your hero. I was like, no, I don't, I don't want to associate him. I was like, oh, you know, Gandhi's your hero. Nah, Malcolm X. I go, you've got no, there's no comparison between you two. I'm like, he was fearless. And I think having conversations that are fearless is the way we move forward now. We carry on that legacy. I think Alison Creeley, you must follow as well. She's absolutely amazing. She said to me once, Shweb, every day is a Malcolm day. You could find a quote, a, uh, a speech, a even a small dialogue, a memoir that fits it every single day. Absolutely timeless, you know. And is, even the stuff he talks about, about gatekeepers, you know, we can apply that in our day-to-day -day language of, you know, with people we interact with, you know, absolutely everything, you know, and uh, just an incredible soul. And, you know, the fact that we, I always think that the, the most beautiful people we see less of there's less we, we their, their life their life doesn't span as long as it should i think 39 years for him you know was was about right for the legacy he was able to spread and even now like when people talk about malcolm x like, oh sure did he say that did he say this about white people put it in context put it in the context then talk about it but yeah def definitely he's an exceptional human being for everyone especially now yes yeah, is a timeless piece of work his autobiography is absolutely amazing and especially like coming back now to a Pakistani Muslim person who thinks about identity a lot and mm. um, as, as a Muslim I, I do get a huge spiritual vibe coming from yes. the book yes. that's my own personal thing just because obviously I'm Muslim I'm, not, I'm very proud to be Muslim I'm very proud of where I am who I am who I pray to etc 
and with the way he he goes through his whole life, and in the end he goes, and it was it was all from Allah. Yep. And, and every, saying, every goodness that I have is all from Allah, and everything that was you know that that's not is from me. Yeah. All faults on my own. And that was the most beautiful line. It was just four or five words. All faults on my own. Isn't that so typical of Malcolm? So humble, so loving, you know. And he always and, yeah. his face and, back. To and one thing that about Malcolm is. Even though he he was and you could say he was he was, he was on, on an, an extreme kind of um, rampage at one point, but he still say things with wisdom, still say things with some sort of evidence backed yes history behind it, and then he'd say it. But he wouldn't just say things willy nilly and mm. think and then create create a rally. He'd always say things evidence based, like this and this and this and happened. Therefore, I'm saying this. Yeah. That, that, that happened. Therefore, I'm saying this. Obviously, sometimes it might be wrong and it might be targeted towards one type of people, and you might you might think okay, that's a, that's a bit too much. But he had reason behind and evidence behind why he was saying it yes definitely through that through that journey that he went through with all the evidence and everything in his head and everything that was going on and him being you know um cheated by his organization and you know who he looked up to and he realized that look humans aren't you know, what, what i thought they were yeah. i.e you know elijah muhammad and so on and then he turned you know to well, what you know, the orthodoxy that we follow yep and then just exceptional exceptional absolutely absolutely Ahmed for the purpose of time brother I think we're kind of reaching the sort end of this podcast Uh, I just want to say thank you so so much for willing to be part of it I know you say that you're very humble and you say things like oh it It was nice to have someone so authentic at the very chalk face of that classroom inspiring those kids and you know long may continue brother inshallah and you just carry Mm -hmm. on doing what you're doing because at the very grassroots, we're going to start that change. And I think it starts within those classrooms to start with. And if it filters down, top down. So keep inspiring those kids. You know, it's really, really important to keep doing what you're doing. And just keep being yourself. Keep shedding light on Kashmir. Keep shedding light on all the, the, the inequalities that are around the world. And, you know, one day I think you're going to, we're going to be on a podcast and we just talk for hours about absolutely anything, like Mango Lassi. And, and also, I can talk forever. So can I. I, I really can. So let's, let's, let's do it sometime, man. If there's enough touching and and people are interested, let's just do it. You know what we should do? We should do like a 10-part series where we just sit for 10 hours straight and just talk about absolutely anything. That would be wicked. Release an hour a week, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. (laughs) Trey, man, you're doing a fantastic job. And I think this uh, anti-small talk inequality series is is an exceptional idea, especially current climate. And and some of the people you've had on, honestly, the powerhouses and the people that you're going to have on as well, like, unbelievable. I can't believe you've got me on out of everyone. Thank you, brother. We are selective in who we choose. It's all the idea of authentic people. And I think you can spot someone's authentic straight away. We've all got our flaws, but uh, we can work towards, uh, you know, making ourselves better and, and, help, and supporting one another as well. So I think this, this conversation really enlightening for many of our Pakistani Muslim educators. I think also we'd have a quick shout out for Sanam Khan. I think her yeah. immediate dialogue started this. She started the sort of support for this. So Sanam is doing some amazing work out there. I'm looking to have her one day. We can have a three-way uh, conversation at some stage in the future. That's definitely a way forward. But yeah, I think Sanam is someone's absolutely fantastic. And Annie Butt as well. Two people are very much on the front line, supporting us, giving us ideas, providing us a veneer to attack these conversations. And really, brother, this open dialogue is more necessary now than ever because... We talk about this lost generation of Pakistani boys. I think we've got to look at lost generation of children full stop with the COVID pandemic. So this of conversation course. was very much overdue. And I uh, just want to thank you for being part of it again, brother. No, exactly. Hey, thank you, my brother. I really appreciate your time and everything you're doing. Keep, keep up with good work, man. Right. And definitely, we will sit down again. No worries, brother. Thank you. Yeah, you take care, brother. Thank you, Duffies.